Um, we are uh, coming through this book of Hebrews in our study, and uh, I think we're on week eight, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, um, we're right about a little over halfway, and you guys are doing a great job trucking with me. I really appreciate it. Um, it is good to, to dive in and study a whole book of the Bible in this way. Um, what we want to do is continue this idea uh, of Jesus is better. We've been talking through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And today there is one big idea that I, that I want you to, to hold and take with you today, and it's this. Jesus brings us heaven on earth. Jesus brings us heaven on earth. And I hope that throughout looking at Hebrews chapter 9, we'll get a sense of this today. Let me first start by um, reading the passage today. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll read all of it from verse 1 through verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would take um, hard things in Scripture, maybe uh, more obscure uh, passages that we don't often enjoy reading and realize it is all meant to point to Jesus and the good news that you are offering, that all of it reveals your character, your deep love for your creation, for your children, God, and your mission to redeem us to yourself through your promised Messiah, Jesus. I pray that we would know that and experience you in your presence as we look into it today. Amen. We, uh, as a family, do movie night uh, once a week, and a couple weeks ago we watched The Prince of Egypt. I don't know if anybody remembers that great late 90s classic. It's fantastic. It's a stacked cast. The, I, it was Hans Zimmer that did the score. It had no business being as great of a movie as it was. It was awesome. And as we finished it, my eldest son, Kasi, was made of questions. He was like, well, what did they do after? And what was this thing? And why did that? And what was the name of the person? I was like, I don't know. It was probably a Benenachabudu or something. I don't know. And what we did was we just said, here, read the book. And we said, you have your Bible. We turned to the correct pages, and he was just nose stuck in the book. And he discovered what I suspect many of you have discovered if you attempt to read through the scripture uh, starting in Genesis. And you usually go through Exodus and it's like, this is exciting. This is page turning. There's suspense. There's drama. There's cliffhangers. There's adversaries. There's defeat of foot. Oh, this is cool. And then we get to this section where it's just like, all right, is this, this is just a contract? This is just a list of rules? Okay. All right. Does it pick up at... And then there's building schematics. Like, what are we doing here? I'm reading a blueprint for five, six, seven chapters. Okay, surely it gets better after that. And then the priest has to wear, it's a clothing lecture? Like, what, what happens here in Exodus? Well, what happens is something that is very important. 
And sometimes we can get bogged down in the, the pedantry, the minutia, uh, it, it might seem, of this latter half of Exodus. But it is, as we see the author of Hebrews using it to illustrate the gospel, an integral part of understanding who Jesus was when he came. Now, this, this morning, what I want to do is zoom out a little bit and talk about things in a little bit more of a, a, a sort of big picture way. Now, last week we talked about the covenant and that what happens in, in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. But right after that in Exodus, after the people ratify the covenant, Moses goes back up the mountain and he's given all of these instructions for something called the tabernacle. And that is why immediately after chapter 8, where the author of Hebrews is talking about covenant, we move to talking about the tabernacle and this thing called the Day of Atonement. And what I want to do a little bit is zoom out and kind of look at why this is a, a copy. You know, he says in verses 23 and 24, these are copies. Or uh, if you read on into chapter 10, shadow, he uses that word. Last week we talked about copies and shadow. And, and I want to, I, I mentioned this briefly, and I think it bears kind of getting into the details just a little bit about what he's doing linguistically in something that permeated Greek language and culture and mindset. Several hundred years before the author is writing, there was this old guy named Plato, and he wrote a book called The Republic. And in the Republic, he introduced this idea, this tale, this parable, this allegory. And if you've ever taken like a university freshman level philosophy course, you have probably had to study the allegory of the cave. And it goes something like this. Imagine a world where your entire world was just you chained to a wall in a cave and there was this flickering light and every so often you saw shadows that pass through the light. And that was your whole world. That is what is real to you. And as you see, you know, some things there, oh, that's a horse, that's a bird, that's what those things are, it's real. And then, Plato argues, imagine if you kind of broke the chain and you got to come out and see behind the wall and see, oh, there's actual real fire here. Your eyes would have to adjust and suddenly you realize, oh, what I thought was light before, that's not even real light. This is, this is light. And then as you see, the, he uses the word marionettes or puppets, you know, things that kind of pass. And you realize, oh, these are three-dimensional. And these have texture and, and substance. And like, now I realize those other things before were just shadows. They were just copies. And this, this is the real thing. This is what a real bird or horse looks like. And then imagine going one step further actually emerging from the cave and staring at the sun and, and like really having to adjust and realizing that fire was nothing compared to the true immovable light in the sky that offers light and warmth. That was just a, a, a copy, a shadow, a cheap imitation of this. And then imagine, if you would, only having ever seen these shadows, if a real horse or a real bird came up to you, animated with life and volition itself, and you would realize, oh, this, this is actually so much more real than these other copies, these other shadows 
I was looking at. And Plato argues that what we see here and now, this is what he called the world of the forms, and it's meant to pique our interest in a world that is more real, in a world that we will someday experience. And in that regard, I think Plato had a few things bang on. And I am not saying that the author of Hebrews is making a direct reference to this story, but what he is doing is employing language that was just present in Greek language and culture that everyone kind of understood. When he talked about shadows and copies, uh, like we see in verses 28 and previously in verse 5 of chapter 8. And all of it is meant to, all of these copies and shadows from these stories of the Old Testament are meant to prepare us to recognize the real thing when it comes along. I personally, nor my children, have never seen a giant panda. I have read descriptions of the giant panda. I have seen drawings of the giant panda. I've seen pictures, and in fact, as the number of you know, uh, you know, uh, Instagram reels my wife shares with me so that we can show our children, I've seen video footage of these clumsy, funny creatures called giant pandas. I have never actually seen one in real life, though. If I did, I would immediately recognize it, though. There would not be some disconnect between the drawings and the description and the video footage I have already seen and my children would immediately recognize what a giant panda is or looks like. And that's what's happening with the tabernacle. With everything given to the people of Israel in the covenant and the tabernacle, it is God kind of saying, I want to prepare you for when the real deal comes along, you're absolutely going to notice it. The tabernacle and especially the Day of Atonement were meant to, excuse me, stir in Israel the expectation of something greater to come. You even see that language in verse 28 of chapter uh, 9 where he says, those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is meant to be something where we get this sort of taste of something coming later that is even more real that we have yet to experience. And so, when, I, when we talk about this kind of big picture, right from the get-go in chapter 9, he mentions this idea. Now, even in the first covenant, it had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. An earthly place of holiness. So suddenly that, there's this implication that there is some other kind of place of holiness, maybe a heavenly place of holiness. And this gets at the, the big picture that I'm talking about. In all of the Pentateuch, in all of the books of Moses, there is this idea presented. In fact, right from verse 1, we see this. I have a little pop quiz for you. I, I'm, I'm willing to bet we'll have near perfection, but we'll see, okay? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the... Very good. Smiley face stickers all around, Okay. I have a four-year-old. That's how we operate. All right. So right from the get-go, we are introduced to God creating these sort of two different realms, the heavens and the earth, this place where God is and heavenly, celestial, supernatural things live and inhabit, and then the earth where mankind and all of his other creation lives and works and moves. But 
in the midst of this, they are not wholly separated. There are these special times and places of overlap between earthly things and heavenly things. In fact, Eden was one of these special places where even though it was on earth, it was a place where God could be with and dwell with his sons and daughters, with humanity. And they walked with God. They talked with him. They had this beautiful, perfect communion with God in this place. And yet, they messed it up. And when they mess it up, their sin mars the sanctity of this place. And they can no longer be there and experience God and his presence in their life in the way that they did before. And they're cast out of the garden. And, and what's put at the gate of the garden? A cherubim, with, with, or a, a cherub or cherubim, with flaming swords, guarding these, these angels, guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Now, as we read through Exodus, you have to, have to, have to keep Genesis in mind and vice versa. They are given at the same time, while the people are wandering in the wilderness right after escaping slavery in Egypt. And when we read through Genesis, we have to understand what God is doing while he, he is giving instruction, Torah, that's what the word means, to his people in Israel. And all of the law and all of the tabernacle laid out is meant to evoke this idea of Genesis. This idea of creating a place where God and man are going to have these special places of overlap, heaven and earth, where we can experience God's presence. And Eden is not, new, not unique. All throughout scripture, we see these special times and places where there's this glimpse of, of heaven, this glimpse of what God is doing in a different realm, a supernatural place. Uh, Jacob experiences this when he wrestles with God. He sees God face to face, and so he calls the place Peniel. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain and talks with God face to face. In fact, his face is glowing, and people are afraid of him when he comes down. Uh, both John in the New Testament and Isaiah in the Old Testament have these visions of the throne room of heaven where there is something wholly otherworldly happening and going on. Even in Jesus' time, he goes up and on a mountain is transfigured and suddenly these Old Testament saints are with him and the, the, the apostles that are there with him have no idea what to do with this because this is so completely otherworldly and it's meant to be. There are these times and places of overlap that we experience. And that is what the tabernacle is meant to be. As God lays out the dimensions and the instructions of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31-ish, what he is doing is hearkening back to language and instruction given in Eden. And we see this all over the place. So what I want to do is walk briefly kind of through the tabernacle as it is described in Exodus. The reason is when the author of Hebrew uses the tabernacle as an illustration, it's because the people there, ethnic Jews, very well read and very well off, they, they're kind of an educated class, they would immediately know what he is talking about. They would immediately have this picture in their minds, and we maybe don't have that as readily at our, our, our fingertips, so to speak. And so I want to walk through this just a little bit. 
this tabernacle. The first thing to notice about the tabernacle, and we'll zoom in on one part and then the next, is it is surrounded by these curtains, by a fencing, so to speak. And all around the fencing, there is this embroidered linen. And in, in some of these curtains, they're called, there is linen that is embroidered with the picture of cherubim, with these angels who, again, were meant to think of the cherubim guarding Eden, keeping people out. And you could only enter one place through the east. And the whole of it, uh, what most people experienced, was this court, court of the tabernacle. And you can see there that there was a big brazen altar where most of the sacrifices were made. Sometimes there was a whole offering or a burnt offering, uh, something where everything was consumed wholly. But there were other kinds of offerings as well, grain offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings. And sometimes... Uh, times when parts of the animal were burnt up, but other parts of the meat were kept, and that was what fed the, the priests, the Levites who worked in the tabernacle. But all throughout this, and you can see the slaughter tables there, there is a whole bunch of blood. There's going to be a lot of blood, in fact. And we're told this, even in Hebrews chapter 9, why blood is a crucial element in all of this. And even from getting into this court of the tabernacles, uh, court of the tabernacle, through the book of Leviticus, there are several chapters of instruction about how you are supposed to enter and what disqualifies you from entering. People that are unclean, if you've had blood or if you've had a disease or you're experiencing other bodily fluids, there are parts of Leviticus that get very uncomfortable, especially from the pulpit, okay? But things that the people culturally kind of associated with life and death, and they said, no, you can't be in the tent because that will mar the experience, that will cut away from it and prevent you from experiencing God in this way, the way that we're supposed to be. And so, because there is so much blood associated here, we need a great big basin of water that's meant to wash everything afterwards and kind of keep things clean. And then as we move over to the tent itself, this is a special thing. In fact, it starts with the covering, and you can see the layers there. On this diagram, this is labeled uh, 9 through 12. But it starts with a fine woven linen, and this is, this is the, the bottom layer, the blue layer on here, number 12, that's labeled. Fine, and they, they said, get artisans to put this together. And woven into this covering is cherubim. It's meant to cover, to protect, to almost sort of keep out people who might have some uncleanness. And on top of that, you have a layer of goat hair, a layer of ram skin, and finally, the hides of sea cows, or maybe your, your version says dolphins even. The, what we know is it's a waterproof protective layer that goes over the entire thing. And then you can see here uh, labeled number eight is this curtain to enter into the holy place. And it was only the priests who did this. Only the Levites who were allowed to go in. And they had to wear special clothing and they had to have a special sort of ordination, inauguration, the seven-day period going in. And by the way, all throughout this instruction, there is language that evokes Eden and creation and Genesis. And seven is a big part of it. This is given in these seven poetic paragraphs. And they talk about this idea of completion. 
And it's all of it meant to remind us of God's creation. And as you enter through this curtain, again, that too is embroidered with cherubim, what you see immediate, whoops, sorry, I've gone one too many. What you see there as you enter in, immediately on your right, I think it's labeled number seven here, is uh, a, a bread with what's called uh, a, a table with what's called the bread of presence, this idea of being present before the Lord. And that bread was rotated out on a weekly basis, and that was what was the food as well as the meat for the Levitical priests. Right on the other side is a lampstand, a menorah, we call it now, with seven lamps that are meant to be tended to day and night. And it says in this language, and night and day, in the same way that there was morning and there was evening the second day, etc., in, in the days of creation. And they're meant to tend to it so that the light never goes out perpetually in this place, sort of preparing you for the presence of God. And there, we come to the end of the tent, there is the most holy place, right in front of the most holy place, but so important that the author of Hebrews includes it in the most holy place, is the altar of incense. And this has two roles. I think this is labeled number four up there. This has two roles. It has an everyday use where there is perpetually incense rising as a way of prayer and praise to God. Morning and evening, they tend to it. They care for it. They are given stewardship over this, the Levites are. But right next to it is a big curtain that, that divides the holy place from what is the most holy place. And this is really special. Only one person the high priest gets to enter and only once a year, we're told and reminded in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. And that is when a, an offering is given and that altar of incense doubles as a place, uh, an altar of sacrifice. And the blood of a pure and blameless goat or bull is sprinkled on it. And then we have the, the, the true centerpiece of all of it, the Ark of the Covenant which is this box made of acacia wood, and it's overlaid with gold. And there is, you know, if I say ark, one of two things probably pop into your head, and they're both from the Bible. This is meant to remind us of Noah's ark. As it stands, it's actually two different Hebrew words, but the translation is not a coincidence because it is supposed to remind us. It is this sort of, this box, this place of protection, and it's overlaid with gold. And what's on top of it? Cherubim. And that is called literally, our, our version here that I read and probably what your Bible say is mercy seat. Literally what it's called is an atonement lid, an atonement covering. And it is there, just where the tips of the angel's wings meet. It says there, that is the spot where I will meet you. That is where the spirit of God will be but only once a year for one person, and you have to do it in these certain ways. And believe it or not, this is a way of God being very generous to his people. Unlike the, the people who worship gods down the road, uh, you know, I don't know, is Moloch angry with us today? Who knows? Uh, let's cut ourselves and offer up our blood. Oh, the crop is still bad. I don't know. Let's offer up our children. Maybe that. 
This is God who is, who is who's saying, we are going to do things differently. This is how you will know. This is where I will meet you. And it is incredibly compassionate and generous to the people. But there is also something as we walk through all of this that makes you go, this feels like a bouncer. It feels like a, there's a gatekeeper where I, my, my entry into God's presence is continually restricted and it has all these sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, conditions attached to it. And yeah, because that's kind of what our sin does and that's why blood is necessary. I've got a video. Uh, there's a, a, um, a Hebrew... Uh, an Israeli-American musician whose music I really, really love, but he lives in Israel, and he visited this life-size replica of of the tabernacle. And I just want to give you an idea of walking through and kind of what people would have had in their minds. Okay, so you see he's in the court here, and there's that big brazen altar. And as he comes through, you're going to see the laver, the, the big the basin uh, for washing that'll have water in it. And here's this tent, and it would have this, this thick curtain. And again, it would be embroidered with cherubim. And as you come in, you see the lampstand and the showbread, the bread of the presence. And as you approach, here's an image of the, the high priest, and there's the altar of incense, and into the most holy place where you would see the Ark of the Covenant. And there where the tips of the angels' wings meet, the mercy seat, the the atonement covering, that is where they would meet God. This is one of these places of overlap. And again, all of this is meant to evoke Genesis and creation and reminding people of how God has revealed himself to us. And as as I look at at this, I'm trying to picture... Lots and lots of blood being spilled all the time. <laughs> and um, the author even states this. And you can verse in, look in verses 18 and verse 22 that there is always blood that is needing to be spilled because there is this sort of constant need for purification. And in fact, he says it's impossible to take away sins without blood. And it's this Um, it's meant to be this allusion to Genesis 3.21, where even before God sends them out of the garden, what does he do? He kills an animal. He spills blood and covers them with the skins of the animal. And it is this idea that atonement happens with blood. The life that, that is contained in blood is what helps to make atonement. But all of this is only meant to be a shadow. It's meant to be a copy. It's meant to prepare you and give you a sense of anticipation and expectation for an even better atonement, a permanent atonement, a real atonement that makes us right with God coming later. And there was all kinds of regulation established for the purification of this place because, and I cannot emphasize this enough, mankind messed it up all the time. All the time, we would introduce our sin that would somehow mar and vandalize this place and introduce sin that kept us from meeting God in the way that he intended. Even, uh, like, while Moses is getting this instruction on the top, like, he has come down, they've ratified the covenant. Yes, we will do all of these things. Great, good. I'm going to go up and get some more instruction. He's writing this all down, and as he is coming down the mountain, he's like, oh, this is, I'm so glad they ratified the covenant. They're on board. They want to follow all of the, what's that? 
Guys, what was rule number one? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, and what did you make there? A golden calf that we could worship as a god. Come on, guys! And then Moses is so he chucks the Ten Command, he chucks the tablets of the law that he has just written. And th this next part, this is not biblical, this is just Pastor Daniel's speculation, but I would like to think he was aiming for somebody. Um, <laughs> you know, like... Listen, I have an older brother. I know how this dynamic works out. Like, oh, you've, I left you with one job. Anyway, um, and they mess it up. They have not even built the tabernacle yet, and they're screwing it up. When there is this inauguration of the priestly order, there is this seven-day period where they have all of these rituals and rites, and they are ordained. And on day eight, they go in, and they do this for the very first time, this making atonement. And Aaron comes in, and he does it well. And then his two sons come in, and they're like, all right, we can do this too. And they screw it up, and they are consumed with fire because they have messed it up. And then God gives them all sorts of new laws and rules about how to keep it a pure place. And rule number one, this, it's a gas, really. I pro, in Leviticus 16, you should check it out. But rule number one is like, okay, let's not drink any wine before coming in, okay? Because we want to do this right, so let's just make sure everybody's sober and clear-minded before coming in, lest you be consumed with God's fire. Um, and we mess it up all of the time because this is meant to be a place where, listen, I want to give you this place where you can meet me on my terms. And I really, really want to keep this. And that is what the tabernacle is, but it can really feel so heavily protected that it's like a, a bouncer, a gatekeeper there. And with all of this in mind, this is where the author of Hebrews says, but Christ, but Christ is different, but Christ has blown this thing way open. He has given us a new covenant. He has given us a new system. He has made it essentially so that we can experience this without all of the rules and regulations and hurdles and hoops to jump through. In short, Jesus brings us heaven on earth. Verses 11 and 12, Christ has entered into this new holy place. Not this holy place, not the tent, but in even the actual holy place, the actual throne room of heaven. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself before the actual presence of God. Christ is coming not to be some priest and improve the system. He is coming to show you what the real deal is. He is coming to show you what has long been promised through these shadows and copies so that you would recognize God himself when he wrapped himself in human flesh and blood and he entered our presence so that we could have this overlap so that we could experience God in a way that says, oh, I don't have to see if it, is it the one day? Am I of the tribe of Levi? Have I made all the right atonements? Am I wearing the right thing? Jesus enters and he says, I've made the atonement. Not once a year, once. And it's done and it's good forever because my blood is good. And, he, and that, that's the whole reason why we can sing songs like what Isaac Watts wrote, a wondrous cross 
What makes uh, this Roman execution device wonderful? It's because it's not an execution device. It's an altar on which a more perfect, more beautiful, more permanent atonement is made, not by the blood of some goat or bull, but by our God himself who took on this flesh and spilled it for you and for me so that we could meet face to face so that we could experience heaven here on earth in a way that God intended, just like he did in Eden, just like he did on the mountain, and just like he gives us a hope that we will experience one day. In fact, when we look at uh, the Gospel of John, by the way, next year, starting in January, we're going to be starting a study in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be going through the Gospel of John. And it opens with this profound verse in chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, the word that is used there, dwelt among us, literally it means tabernacle. It's the same word. And Jesus himself comes in and he becomes our tabernacle. Not to give us a new, improved, and better tabernacle, but to say, I, I am your tabernacle. I am bringing you this overlap between heaven and earth. And here, through me and my blood, what I did once and for all, that is how you get to encounter a living God that made you for a relationship with him, your father. Jesus does all that. And we don't have to keep sacrificing and keep spilling blood perpetually as the others do. And we'll talk more about that as we move into chapter 10 next week. I'm already sensing I'm going to go over and I apologize. I'm getting worked up, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) But Jesus brings us heaven on earth. Jesus perfects this idea of the shadow, the copy of the tabernacle and the day of atonement that was given for centuries leading up to his entering our midst and coming with us. So what? What does this have to do with us? How do we then live and interact? And I have a couple of ideas and a couple of notes. The first is this. You don't have to clean yourself up before coming to the Father. You don't have to make some sacrifice or make sure it's the right calendar day or make sure you're wearing the right thing or kill or, you know, the, the, the dove or the goat or the whatever in order to come to God. Far too many people stay away from fellowship. They stay away from the Bible. They stay away from prayer. They stay away from worshiping because they feel like they haven't cleaned themselves up enough. That's ridiculous. Stop it. Jesus has done that for you. You don't have to make yourself clean in order to come and experience God's presence in your life. He's already done that. So come just as you are, and he'll do the rest. The second is, because of Jesus, and because we individually don't have to jump through hoops or become clean in order to experience God's presence in our lives, We ought to, as a church, sorry, we ought to, as a church, have this mindset that if God is not making me jump through hoops or leap hurdles in order to come into his presence, we as the church should not put out hoops or hurdles or or gatekeepers 
to, to welcome people in. We as a church ought to be known as that place that's welcome to anybody. I want our church to have a reputation for people to say, oh, is that that place where all of the liars and the cheats, where all of the addicts and the broken people are welcome? Yep, that's us. Because <laughs> that's it, we're all broken people. I want to be a church that says absolutely, wherever you are in whatever stage and whatever, however far away you are from God, there is no prerequisite to coming in and experiencing him here today, now, because Jesus brings us heaven on earth. Jesus has already done the work so that we can experience that. And finally, I think that in all of these ways that we get a taste of heaven, in all of these ways that, that Jesus brings us heaven on earth and he shows us this other realm, he gives us glimpses into the world of the Father where he reigns, it ought to change our perspective a little bit. It ought to alter our mindset. It ought to, in a word, give us hope. It ought to always keep our mind on what is coming, on the promise that he has made. And it changes our perspective on life and death and suffering and grief and even saying goodbye. Yesterday, we laid Ed Bailey to rest. And um, I, I got to tell you, I've done funerals um, with people that knew the Lord and people who did not know the Lord, and it's way, way better. It is way more refreshing for my soul to do the former. And Ed knew the Lord. And it was a time of, of grieving, yes, but also of celebration because Ed was getting to experience something that you and I just have a, a promise, a hope for someday. And as we were laying to rest his remains, this was the verse that came to mind and that I, I read. And I want to leave you with this, this picture of an overlap of what Jesus bringing us heaven on earth can really look like and will eventually look like. At the very end of scripture in John 21, we're given this vision. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the great hope and promise that we live with because Jesus brings us heaven on earth. God, we pray that we would experience your presence in our lives, that we would see these parts of Scripture as they are, copies, hints, whispers, shadows of what you had planned all along to bring us, namely yourself, in wrapping yourself in flesh and blood and coming and living among us, tabernacling among us so that we could experience your presence. I pray that we would do that this morning and this week, as we, this week, as we give you glory. Amen.